0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. President Trump threw cold water on Theresa May's Brexit deal the other day. He called it a great deal for the EU. He also said it isn't clear if the agreement will allow a U.S.-U.K. trade partnership. The British prime minister defended her Brexit plan and insisted that the U.K. will be able to strike new trade agreements with the rest of the world after it leaves the European Union. With me is Anthony Phillipson. He'll also defend the deal. He is the British Consul General in New York and the U.K. Trade Commissioner for North America. Thanks for joining me, Anthony Phillipson. My pleasure. Uh, is President Trump technically correct that the U.S. won't be able to ink a trade deal with Britain for at least a couple of years there after the
1: brexit vote i think there's two points to be very clear about first of all the shared ambition between the prime minister and the president and they've repeated this often when they've met in uh, davos in january this year and then at checkers uh, in july that they both aspire to deepen and strengthen the relationship between the uk and the u.s including through fta both of us have begun steps towards that, although we can't start negotiating it until we have left the EU after March 29th next year. So on our side, we have completed a public consultation. The US have just launched their public consultation uh, through a USTR notice in the Federal Register uh, a few days ago. And we have set up a trade and investment working group that has been working through the issues uh, since July last year. So we have a shared ambition. In terms of the timing, our aim is to begin negotiations as soon as possible after we have left. We will be, according to the terms of the withdrawal agreement, in what we call an implementation period up until December 2020, during which we can negotiate, scope, ratify uh, trade agreements. We can't implement them, though, until we have left the implementation period. But we believe that that is the time we're going to need to do an FTA anyway. So we believe that we can and we have every intention of going down that route with one of our most important trading partners in pursuit of the shared ambition of the prime minister and the president.
0: Now, I noticed that um, some people out there are saying it's going to be longer than two years. Nigel Farage seems to say six years and it sounds like President Trump was listening to Nigel Farage on Fox News before he made his statement. Is that where does that come from?
1: Uh, I don't know where the six years comes from, other than people observe how long it has taken the EU to negotiate with other uh, major economies. But I think the, the really important point here is that the UK and the EU are starting together. Uh, we're completely aligned. We have zero tariffs, zero quotas. So a lot of the normal things that you would need to go through a negotiation between two major economies, we just don't need to do. We start together. What we need to do is to put in place a system of uh, governance arrangements between the UK and the EU to govern our future economic relationship. And uh, over the weekend, the Prime Minister and the leaders of the other 27 member states agreed a future framework political declaration that makes clear that we, again, start with a complete agreement that we're going to have a deep and uh, comprehensive economic uh, partnership between us And now what we will do during the implementation period is put in place the governance arrangements to make that happen. It's a completely different type of negotiation to anything that has been done before. And we are very confident that we can complete it during the implementation period between the end of March next year and the end of December 2020.
0: Is it frustrating arguing for something that is so complicated? The Brexit deal is 500 pages long. There's all sorts of uh, legal language in it. I know that Downing Street has a Brexit facts blog now and is going tooth and nail on, on you know broadcasts and uh, things they hear that, uh, that they don't think are factually correct. But it's a hard thing to do with so many technicalities. People can kind of say anything about it.
1: I think the uh, there's two points I think I would tease out from that. One is uh yes, this is a complex process. The UK has been part of European uh, governance arrangements for over 40 years. It's not going to be straightforward to unwind ourselves from that. And that I think is reflected in the uh, both the specificity and therefore the length of the withdrawal agreement. At the same time though, uh I would really just reiterate the the shared ambition to create a new uh relationship Um, And that's what the Outline Political Declaration does, which is much shorter uh, because it's a more strategic statement of intent document. The second issue, uh, I think you pick up on the Brexit Facts blog, what the Prime Minister is doing is setting out to the country, to Parliament uh, and to others, our commitment to delivering on the result of the referendum in June 2016. Uh, There is, as you say, there's a lot of noise, there are a lot of people talking about this process. I think it's really important that we keep focused on the facts focused on the progress that we have made with our European partners, our shared ambition to get to a new relationship in the future that allows us to do uh, our, uh, pursue an independent trade policy, including with the US. That is all complex stuff. But we are making progress. And the prime minister has set out a number of times the process that she's working through. And that is what we are working through.
0: I'm talking with Anthony Philipson. He is the Consul General in New York for the UK government and the UK Trade Commissioner for North America. And we're talking about the Brexit deal. There has to be a vote in the British Parliament by December 11th. If I were a US business right now, um, would it be easier for me to route for the Brexit vote to fail and for another referendum to pop up, and that would be just easier. There would be uh, certainty, there would be all the same standards and protocols as the EU, and that would all be the same, you know, years into the future. Uh, Is there any advantage for US businesses in Brexit?
1: I think the important point is that the British people voted in a referendum and said that they wanted to leave the EU, and that is what the government is uh, committed to delivering. In terms of U.S. businesses and, indeed, other major uh, international investors who we talk to a lot, uh, they really want to see the word you use there, which is certainty and clarity. Uh, That is what the withdrawal agreement delivers for them. It delivers a smooth, orderly uh, withdrawal or exit from the EU, It provides for the implementation period that means there's no cliff edge at the end of March. And it gives us, uh, alongside it in the political declaration, a stated and shared ambition to a new future partnership between the UK and the EU, which is going to be closer than the EU has with any other third party. There is no model for it. uh, And allows us to deepen and strengthen our links between the UK and US economies, two of the most innovative, highly skilled research-oriented, uh, services-oriented economies. We should be working together to determine the global f- trade rules of the future. And we can do that deepening and strengthening, whether it's through an FTA or through talks in the regulatory, uh, financial services regulatory working group set up between our two treasuries in March, or any other fora that we create. I think the withdrawal agreement, the implementation period, the political declaration, gives US businesses what they want.
0: All right. So is there a specific uh, U.S. business you could point to that would uh, benefit from this Brexit agreement?
1: I don't think it's a question of um, specific businesses. It's if we look at the the sectors that are going to drive jobs and growth in the U.K. and U.S. economies uh, in the future, whether it's financial services or life sciences, advanced manufacturing, digital trade, et cetera, et cetera. What we will do, not just through Brexit, but through other things like our, uh, our industrial strategy, which sets out a framework of policies and regulations that will create an ecosystem that will attract investment in the future across all of these sectors, it will allow the UK to continue to create an economy that attracts record levels of US investment. We're the biggest investors in each other's countries now, and we intend to maintain that position, and it allows us to look forward and create the economy of the future.
0: You know, I read that Citigroup was uh, announcing that it was moving a few jobs out of London last month, 63, and they were preparing for the possibility of a hard Brexit. Does the UK government have a strategy to get US businesses to stay in London?
1: Yes. um, We have uh, set out in a number of ways our ambition to retain uh, the role of the city of London and indeed the rest of the UK as one of the great financial centres of the of the world uh, the, the financial services sectors of the world, um, We intend to minimise disruption of Brexit through a smooth orderly withdrawal. We intend to create, as I say, uh, the frameworks and the policies that will attract investment in the future. If you look at the investment that we continue to attract in fintech and some of the the more sort of uh, technologically focused aspects of financial services. Um, we are attracting record level. We're attracting more to the UK than most of our European partners put together. I think that's a record that speaks for itself. The challenge is to keep refining and redefining the UK as a player in the global economy for the future.
0: You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell talking with Anthony Phillipson, who is the British Consul General in New York and the UK Trade Commissioner for North America. Coming up in a moment after the break, we'll be talking with some people who went down to Texas and they have been protesting outside of a place where the United States holds undocumented children and they want to close it. We'll be talking with them in a few minutes. Um, I wanted to talk more about the city of London. I read that the head of the city of London predicted in July that three thousand five hundred to twelve thousand financial jobs will be lost because of Brexit in the short term, and there's also data in a in a survey that said that new york's overtaken London as the world's most attractive financial center. Um, you are the Consul General of New York. are you seeing? Uh, an an exodus of businesses as they move from London to New York? Do you get to see that up front?
1: No, I really don't think that's what we are seeing. What I think we are seeing is businesses that will keep making investment decisions where where they put either reinvestment or future or new investment, uh, and they will make those decisions for a whole raft of factors, uh, which will include the quality of our regulatory environment, uh, our immigration policy, our investment incentives, our taxation policy—we have the lowest uh, corporation tax in the G7, and we still uh, will step down uh, uh, in a year. So, you know, all of those factors will be weighed by these uh, by these companies as they decide where the future growth opportunities are. I think I am very confident that London and New York can continue to work. Not only we compete at some level, but we will also be working together to think about how the UK and US want to work in the G7, G20, the IMF, the OECD, Financial Stability Board, et cetera, et cetera, to create the global rules uh, that will drive jobs and growth. So I think there is is a dynamic between London and New York, as well as between London and Singapore, where I was previously posted, or London and uh, Shanghai. It's not going to be static. And that's why we need to keep looking forward and keep creating the incentives and the opportunities for people to invest in the UK. And that's what we will be doing.
0: You know, you mentioned the relationship and how it's um, competitive to a certain extent and uh, it's it's business relationships. So um, in that scenario, I was reading something in The Guardian the other day, and it said that it was always obvious where the bargaining power would lie in trade talks between a small country with big ideas and any global superpower. It was willfully naive not to see that even friendly nations would try to exploit our self-inflicted crisis to extract a better deal for themselves. Do you see that going on with President Trump's remarks, with the kind of things that are going to come down the pike here as the U.K. renegotiates its trade deals with everybody? There, it, It's going to be hard to get a good deal out of the United States or a better deal out of the United States when you're a smaller entity.
1: The U.K. is the fifth biggest economy in the world. Uh, no, we're not as big as the U.S., uh, but I think we have uh, some competitive qualities that uh, that do match the U.S. Uh, I mentioned fintech. I think London is certainly the global capital of, of the fin- of the fintech sort of evolution. So uh, I think that the challenge for us in terms of defining our ambitions for an, a trade agreement, whether with the U.S. or we've also consulted on an agreement with uh, Australia or New Zealand, we need to set out what it is that we want to do, What are the policies that we want to align? What are the the tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers that we want to bring down that allow businesses to do more trade with each other and allow more investment to flow in each direction? And we obviously will need to define that in a way that will pass muster in each of our countries, because at the end of the day, Congress and our parliament will need to approve these trade deals and we will need to be able to present a mutual win-win narrative that sets out how through this agreement we have deepened and strengthened the relationship between the economies that will provide these job opportunities in the future these growth opportunities in the future and that's what we're doing that's what as i said earlier we have consulted on ourselves it's what the u.s are consulting on now it's what we have begun talking with the u.s administration uh, about it's also something that we are looking to talk more about uh, beyond washington uh, and in the other sort of major cities and the, the, the the states of the u.s uh, that's why it's a, it's a pleasure to be talking to you today. It's uh, I'm talking to you from Syracuse in upstate New York, where we've been talking to the mayor's office about economic development opportunities. I don't think we should narrow ourselves to a single ambition. We should be looking for opportunity wherever we can find it.
0: The vote is December 11th for the Brexit agreement in Parliament. And I was looking at some of the data the guardians kind of doing a running count of where it might land and right now 412 voting against the deal 226 voting for the deal uh what's your best pitch to get parliamentarians to sign up for this because it seems like the you know the people who are hard brexiters don't want it and the people who are remainers don't want it and the middle is doesn't have a lot of ground there
1: I think the best pitch is the one that the Prime Minister has set out uh, to Parliament uh, at least twice now in uh, set-piece statements after the big European Council meetings. Uh, It's also uh, what she set out in a press conference uh, the week before last, and most significantly, I think it's what she set out in a letter to the nation over the weekend. Uh, This is the Brexit that delivers on the people's decision in June 2016 that we should leave the EU It delivers it in a way that is smooth and orderly. It delivers it in a way that provides for uh, continuity and certainty for business in terms of giving them time to transition into the future arrangements once we have agreed them with the EU. It delivers on a Brexit that is the right exit for the UK economy, for UK jobs and the UK people. Uh, And as she herself has said, um, there's a choice to be made between this Brexit, a no-deal Brexit or no Brexit. And those other two options do not deliver on the will of the British people in a way that suits the British economy and British interests. And I think that is the case you will continue to make between now and the crucial votes in Parliament.
0: Anthony Philipson is British Consul General in New York and the UK Trade Commissioner for North America. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the Brexit vote and deal.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll find out about a detention center in Texas that houses 2,300 undocumented children. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. More than 14,000 unaccompanied immigrant minors are held in detention in the U.S., according to the latest statistics from the Department of Health and Human Services. It's the highest number ever. More than 2,300 of these children are held in a remote facility outside of Tornillo, Texas. The facility was started in June and was supposed to be temporary, but it's only grown. But a, a movement to close the facility is also growing. Faith groups from around the country have protested at the facility. One of them is a group from Congregation Hakafa in Glencoe, Winnetka. With me is Lee and Nancy Goodman, who've made two trips to the Tornillo Detention Facility. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Good to be here.
2: Glad to be here. Thank Can,
0: you. I think most of us have no
3: idea what a facility of this looks like. Can you describe what it is, um, Lee? This one is peculiar because it is a tent city. Most places where uh, people are held are the, more like prisons or actually at least one of them is held in uh, in an old Walmart that was abandoned. But this one, you you get off the road and it's a beautiful location in the uh, Texas desert. There's alfalfa fields and cotton fields and nut trees being farmed. And then there's a great big fence with barbed wire at the top, which doesn't particularly look like anything. It could be a truck stop. Uh, but then and there's no sign saying what it is. It doesn't say we've got 2,300 children being imprisoned here, but that's the reality of it. So what it looks like is not what it is.
0: What does it look like to you, Nancy, when you, when you go up to it?
2: Oh, well, I think the impression of it uh, is just chilling, that you can't see in to see the children. It's very secretive um, and very contained. But you know that behind the barbed wire, there, there are children there, and uh, why are they there? What's, uh, what's the terrible threat that they have to be in this remote place uh, how did your
0: How did your congregation get involved in this, Nancy?
2: Uh, well, we've uh, Hakafah has been uh, involved in immigration issues for quite a while whether from coming from a legislative and advocacy sort of viewpoint or um, in more recent years uh, helping mentor and uh, help refugee families adjust to their new life in the U.S. We've Helped 15 families now. And so we're sort of from the big picture and from the personal viewpoint. So this, when we heard of this uh, detention camp, it, it sort of resonated with us and felt like there's something we really needed to take a closer look at.
0: And so a group of you and uh, Rabbi Bruce Elder from your organization, you all went down together one time and then again.
3: Well, it was just me the first time. I went to see what was going on. I spent several days talking with the people uh, who have been organizing protests on the ground and other people in the community to get a feel for what was really there. And then uh, we came back as part of a nationwide caravan. Um, so we brought a different
0: the, kind of caravan
3: <laughs> a different kind of caravan exactly at the same time that we were told we had to be alarmed about all these uh, migrants coming up from Central America. Um, people came from a number of congregations around the country to protest outside of this prison, and we were part of that.
0: Now, one of the people you met is on the line with us. His name's Joshua Rubin. Introduce me to Joshua Rubin, Lee.
3: Well, Joshua Rubin is that uh, remarkable person who decided all on his own that he was going to camp out at the gate to the prison. And he's been there, I believe, for about five weeks now. He's rented an RV, he lives there. And he stands on any particular day with a sign that says "Free them." And as a result of his being there, uh, we have been able to start organizing opposition in a way that wasn't done before. So to me, it's uh, one of those just wonderful stories about one person deciding he was going to make a difference, and he's making a, a terrific difference.
0: And Joshua now Rubin joins us on the line now from Torneo, and he's got uh, been writing about what he does on his Witness Torneo Facebook page and reporting on everything he sees. Thanks. A for joining us, Joshua Rubin.
4: Glad to be here.
0: Can you tell us how you got started doing this? Why? How we heard about why Lee started doing it, but and Lee and Nancy. But how about you?
4: Well, you know, I, I started uh, watching this uh, way too much uh, on uh, on television uh, at the time of the family separation crisis, and uh, at some point, I got restless enough to uh, to come down to uh, you know the uh, the valley in Texas and and protested at that time in uh, McAllen, at a detention center there. Um, since then, um, well, I was hoping, you know, that there would be mobs of people coming coming down to the border, but uh, the border is a pretty remote place most people, um, and maybe a little scary. Um, but I came down that time, and I came down again, and uh, during one of those trips, I spent uh, a few hours here at Tornillo, and then uh, during another trip, I was sitting around with a bunch of activists, and there was a A woman there, in the room, who said that she she was tired of people coming down and spending a day and thinking they did something, and that sounded a little too much like me. Uh, So I started to think about what I could do if I came down and uh, and stayed for a while.
0: And now you, the things you've been writing on the Witness Torneo Facebook page are really interesting, and you do reveal what it's like there and what uh, kind of a thing we almost can't imagine. I was watching one of the videos you made of. people coming into the facility at 6 in the morning. And, it's, and of course, you know, if you're housing 2,300 people, children, you've got a lot of staff and people that come in. But to see truckloads and truckloads and cars lined up outside, it, it's, there's so much that moves in and out of the facility. It's kind of staggering.
4: It is kind of amazing um, in order to run a place like this uh, and, and take care of all these kids in, in some fashion. Uh, you need a lot, and and they put it out here in a pretty remote spot. You know, I mean, we're in the desert here. Um, There's not enough water on site to take care of things, so they're trucking in water all day from a nearby uh, fire hydrant. Um, There are no real toilets, so we're talking about chemical toilets inside that have to be pumped, and so those are coming in and out all day. Um, And uh, the last several weeks, There's also a lot of construction material and tents coming in. This place is is growing and it's growing very fast at this point.
0: And, Lee, while you were there, they were telling you that it is temporary and it's going down.
3: They've been telling everyone since it was first opened up back in June, don't worry, this is just a temporary thing. And they've given us a number of different deadlines by which they said it'll be gone. But at the exact same time, it's getting bigger and bigger. Since I was there a couple of weeks ago, the population has increased by about 1,000 people. We're told that the planned capacity is about 3,800. But at this point, it's very difficult to know what to believe.
0: Now, the facility isn't run by the U.S. government. It's run by an organization, a nonprofit called BCFS. And, uh, Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about BCFS? It was formerly known as Baptist Child and Family Services and started a long time ago in 1944. They were, they helped orphaned children and things, but they've gotten into disaster relief and all sorts of things.
4: All right. Uh, you know, they been involved in a lot of uh, emergency relief operations, but uh, uh, in the last few years, they've gotten involved in uh, in detention. So they've become jailers, which is kind uh, of kind of a new part of their mission. Which, um, by the way, is stated, uh, and I paraphrase here, that they are uh, their job is to be the presence of Jesus on Earth. And um, I don't know that. Uh, that we would agree that the uh the job they're doing now uh imprisoning uh teen teens here in the chihuahuan desert is uh is what jesus would do um but they're in, they're you know the, the kind of non-profit organization that uh you know where the ceo makes about a half a million bucks a year so uh it's it, it's it's that sort of non-profit and uh just as he said when i first got here they would come out and uh People would come, come out and be sent out to talk to me and tell me not to worry. It's, uh, it's fine that I'm here, but uh, I'm worried this place is demobilizing and it's going to be gone. And so I, uh, I said, that's great, then I'll get to go home. Um, but I'll stay around and watch just in case. And then what's really been happening is, is more and more kids are coming in and more and more infrastructure. I mean, supposedly they had the infrastructure for 3800 And if they've increased that in the quantity that I'm seeing... Uh, it shouldn't be long before there are uh, many, many thousands of, of uh, kids here.
0: I'm talking with Joshua Rubin. He's parked in an RV outside of a detention facility in Tornillo, Texas. And also with me is Leah Nancy Goodman, who've made two trips to the Tornillo detention facility. Uh, I, so there was an Associated Press story that came out yesterday, and it talks about how much it costs to, to house these people and— um, DCF uh, or uh, the um, BCFS is uh, is is housing number. It's 700 dollars a day. Nancy, do you have some ideas about this?
2: We had uh, when we were in Texas, we heard estimates of five hundred per child per day, seven hundred per child per day, and um, we were t- told this was what the administration was uh, was information they were providing. Uh, the, the more recent information coming from congressional. Uh, uh, representatives who've who have visited said the actual figure is twelve hundred per day, which when you add that up, if it's a thousand kids, that's thirty six million a month.
0: And and the contracts and, are and, for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars right. for this. For, and this
2: and it, even though the president has said when he had, um, was interviewed on Fox News and and said we're going to build tent cities, this is is basically a prototype for what he envisions to be a string of, of uh, such facilities to house, uh, house people. Um, he said, well, we're not building permanent structures. We'll make these tent cities. However, the cost to do a permanent structure per person, we found estimates uh, of more like $133 per day. Or if you just monitor the detainees, it's $17 a day. So there's a lot you could do with that money that could better serve these children than to keep them locked up indefinitely.
0: Um, Josh, why do you think we're spending such phenomenal amounts of money housing these people remotely in tents? And I understand the tents have air conditioning and heating, and sometimes they have to run both in the same, at this, during the same day because of conditions.
4: Yeah, the conditions are very extreme out here. Um, the, the advantage of this place to them is that it's out of sight. Um, that uh, that it's off grid. That uh, people don't come out here. It's a it's a very remote place. Uh, so the 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 advantage is that the disadvantage, of course, is that it costs a lot of money. But I don't think anybody's particularly concerned about that. Um, and it's very hard to uh, to keep this place going under the kind of extreme conditions that we have here uh, out in the desert. Um, but the isolation, we're, we're not to see. I mean. Um, uh Nancy can tell you, you, you you find it very hard to see these kids. You know, I do manage sometimes to to get close enough to have a look, but they don't want me to see them, and they don't want them to see me, and they don't want the people who work here to talk about working here, and they don't want the people who work here to talk to the kids about the ordeals that they have. I mean, that's the, the first rule they're taught, is don't talk to them about what they've been through. Um, so it's, it's kind of an exercise in, 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 in trying to keep us from doing what comes naturally to human beings, which is looking at a child and caring. Um, so out here in the desert, it doesn't matter how much money they spend, so long as we don't get to look at them and care.
0: Oh, I know you've got some ideas about Christmas. Uh, what are your ideas about what's going to happen in Tornillo and Christmas, Joshua?
4: Well, you know, it's 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 kind of spontaneous, and it's coming from a lot of different directions. But there are a lot of people talking about come down here for Christmas, and uh, and and kind of kind of sitting on the spot, you know, staying here uh, for between Christmas and New Year's. And uh, there were people talking about doing some caroling, both in English and Spanish, uh, because when the wind's in the right direction, those kids can possibly hear us, uh, as long as they don't use uh, amplification inside to to mask our sound. And there are people talking about doing things with light just to let these kids inside know. The few times I've been able to make contact with the kids inside, uh, you know, I give them a thumbs up. They give me a thumbs up. They, they want contact. They, they need it. And that's not what they're getting inside. Um, between Christmas and New Year's, I think there are going to be a lot of people here. I'm sorry to get that feeling. And I welcome people to come down here.
0: So uh, at your witness torneo Facebook page you've got information about Christmas you've got uh a uh, uh, GoFundMe page uh to to help fund for your uh presence there uh you're you're a regularly a uh, tech guy who's who's taking time off from from things to go down there
4: Yeah I'm am I'm a software developer and I'm lucky enough to have a business partner who's doing all the work for a while <laughs> um i <laughs> uh, and here uh I'm here uh, doing this for for as long as I can take
0: it. Uh, do you think the children are in pretty good conditions there? It sounds like it's uh, – well, how, would, how would you describe it, Lee?
3: Well, there have been limited inspections uh, clergy allowed in, um, and all reports are that the kids are being fed and they're clean, um, but they're in isolation essentially. So are they being well cared for? Well, kind of the way you'd – care for a pet maybe, but even pets you you have interactions with. So my main concern isn't that the kids are being fed. My concern is that there's no reason to have them there. They're being used as political tools by an administration that deliberately set this up admittedly to frighten people not to come to the border under the threat that if you come to the border, we will take your children away. And all of the professionals, the psychologists and the social workers who have been there, who have looked at the conditions, uh, who know what this means to these children, say this is a terrible way to be treating children. And it has impacts and some of them likely very long lasting.
0: Um, Lee, you are an activist on gun control mostly. You have an organization. You work on gun control issues. uh, But you got involved in this in a very – Uh, passionate way Uh, what have you come away with from this
3: well it's it's all related of course how we treat one another how we uh, view the world what we're willing to do to other people so this isn't really so different from the work that uh, i and many of others uh, have been doing and will be continuing to do as far as violence because this is a form of violence it just so happens it's violence against children who come from someplace else
0: Leah and Nancy Goodman uh, went down to Tornillo, Texas, and they visited the Tornillo detention facility. And are you guys thinking about going back for Christmas?
2: Whether it's Christmas or sometime soon, we're kind of coordinating with a lot of people who will be involved.
0: Um, And thanks very much, Joshua Rubin, who's in an RV outside of Tornillo, Texas, and uh, his Witness Tornillo Facebook page has a lot of information about what's going on there. Thanks very much for your efforts, uh, Joshua Rubin.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, so check it out. Uh, there's also an Associated Press story about the Torneo detention facility that uh, has a lot of details about it that just came out. And uh, there's some good media on it coming uh, these days. Thanks very much, Leah and Nancy Goodman, for uh, coming down and suggesting this segment to me. And coming up after the break, we are going to have Catalina Maria Johnson and our Global Notes uh, series. And we'll look at international music and talk about Mondial Montreal. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and I heard that described as alien hip-hop, but I don't know if that's true or not, where it's time for Global Notes, our international music uh, segment with music and culture writer Catalina Maria Johnson. Great to see you.
5: Hey, Jerome. Great to be back. And uh, yeah, we're <laughs> I was thinking as I prepared some of the songs, uh, this is, might be a little too weird for Jerome. <laughs>
0: No way! I'm totally into this. It's meditative, it is uh-huh. um, it is kind of alien, uh-huh. um, but this is some of the music you found at Mundial Montreal, the, the World right. Music Festival in Montreal you just
5: went at. Yes, it's a World Music Festival showcase. So again, it's an industry showcase with concerts open in the evenings. Um, To the public, but during the day there's panels And it's a talent market There are people there looking at Especially North America, especially US And especially Canada's offerings And uh, I discovered A lot of music This is Scylla and Rise It's a trio, uh, two women And it's Inuit throat singing Combined with like Straight up dance floor And sometimes hip hop So it's really at the crux of I really love this kind of music, which is very ancestral, very rooted, and very futuristic. So it's got all of that power and is propelling... An ancient ancestral music into the future throat singing from. It sounds like there was a significant amount of
0: indigenous music there at the festival.
5: Yes, Mundial Montreal, Montreal has a whole indigenous series, so there's definitely been a welcoming from the um, world music community, uh, especially in Canada, to the indigenous music. So this is from from Ottawa, from the north, from like really vast uh, lands, and this paired throat singing, which uh is usually two women it's competitive they 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 stand very close to one another and they with the breathing in and out it's like matching the rhythm and uh, the sound and whoever laughs first or loses their breath loses <laughs>
6: <laughs>
0: so, uh, it's also that's, one that's of the <laughs> uh,
5: first uh art forms named cultural heritage uh of Canada so of Quebec so oh, that's fantastic uh, let's hear some other music what else do we have oh this is going in across the atlantic uh, again it's an international showcase with invited guests from other parts and this is Marina all the way from Barcelona from Catalonia Spain
7: Mundo de escombro No causa asombro Lágrimas caen Pero no encuentran el mar La fragilidad Perdida empatía Lloró la alegría Qué difícil vivir así Sin amar Desconexión De lo que subyace De lo profundo De latir de la vida Y de tu corazón Parecí Pies sin zapatos y niñas tropezando Tu dolor es mi dolor, tu canción es mi canción Silos de guerra y de injusticia perpetuan tu codicia That's
0: Marina from Catalonia, Spain. And if if you had made me guess, I would not have said Catalonia.
5: Well, she's actually a pioneer and a major iconic figure from the beginning of the aughts with a band called Ojos de Brujo that took uh, rumba flamenca, Cuban music, they called it gypsy punk hip-hop flamenquillo, (laughs) and there's been, uh, with a Manu Chao, kind of like that vibe, that French, Basque, Spanish, Catalan vibe. But there's been nobody kind of to fill that gap. Uh, Manu Chao records every now and then, but uh, Marina now has her own project as of a few years ago. Uh, M-A-R-I-N-A-H, Marina. And she's taking the, that flag up again. And it was a treat to see her live. It's, uh, it's a wonderful fusion. It's, it's a, an amazing how many things she pulls on.
0: I'm talking with Catalina Maria Johnson about Mundial Montreal and some of the acts she saw there. And uh, Marina sounded very interesting and lovely. Well, where else are we going here?
5: Well, uh, uh, just to share again, that Mundial Montreal has these concerts at night, but these are uh, artists that are showcasing to different um, literally talent buyers, university administrators, uh, our people from Chicago Cultural Center, so we might get to see and hear some of this in the near future. And we're going to... um, You'd be surprised, Uh, of course, Canada's scene is focused on in Mundial Montreal. You'd be surprised to know that uh, Canada, and particularly Toronto, has a huge Cuban music scene, very solid, very interesting, very fascinating, and came about partly when some uh, musicians defected. Several from the Cubanismo in the mid uh, in like two thousand and seven. So out of that explosion of Cuban music, some of which had already rooted there, there's just a very high level of musicianship, and out of that comes Okan, brand new, led by two women, and it's Afro Cuban jazz roots music. A sound all its own. <laughs>
7: olvidarme, ha de ser imposible, porque eternos recuerdos tendrás siempre de mí, mis caricias serán el fantasma terrible de lo mucho que sufro, de lo mucho que sufro,
8: alegado de
0: Okan Cuban music by way of Toronto, and I went online and listened to some of their other songs. And as is indicated in that song, they all—they can sound very different. They can have very different influences, and you can see the influences bouncing around in this song. But it all comes together with these shining vocals that are uh, beautiful and
5: crystal, And really very high musicianship, high artistry of Ocán, led by two women who are from different uh, points of Cuba, from Havana and Santiago. So I think you get that classic training that's classically Cuban, but then you get Santiago's influence, which is close to Haiti, Jamaica, kind of that, uh, Caribbean, the more Caribbean influence, and then you get the Havana-like urban influence, and they're just brilliant musicians and you're right they 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 go bounce back and forth between very traditional cuban and afro-cuban and jazz
0: folkish at their times their
5: torch ballads at times
0: (laughs) it's they got it all
5: and yet it's all from the same root it's really all from africa so you that shines through in and they in all of those layers i love okan yeah it was quite a discovery brand new they've got a, a brand new debut album
0: All right, our next artist, I think we're going somewhere other than Canada.
5: (laughs) Yeah. Again, uh, Mundial Montreal has a large focus on indigenous music and the indigenous series. And I've learned a lot about uh, the people of Australia, the indigenous original Aboriginal people of Australia, and also about this group of people, the Sami, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and... Just a history I knew very little about. This is an artist that has not recorded her debut album. This is she's a visual artist, so I you know encourage people to take a look at the visual pieces. And it, she presents.
0: We're going to tweet out her uh, her YouTube video about. Yeah, it's fantastic.
5: It is amazing reindeer herding, and this is the song that's related to that video. <laughs>
8: le <laughs>
0: from the Sami Indigenous Artist from Norway, El Marja, and it's a song about herding, and it's a fantastic video where you see all those horned caribou that they have in Norway in huge herds and these indigenous people herding them on snowmobiles with dogs and with, uh, where, I don't know, she's out there dancing in the snow. It's a fantastic video.
5: It really is. And, and it's also important to note that there's been some encroachment of uh, on the reindeer herding uh, because of the oil in the area. So um, they're, they're fighting very hard to keep the tradition alive and to keep, it, it's tied into a specific landscape. If you don't have the land and the landscape, you cannot survive uh, the way you have.
0: Well, Catalina Maria Johnson, uh, thanks for a little trip to Moondal Montreal. It uh, sounds like quite a nice festival, and I'm glad you came back with some wonderful things for us. And you can stay in touch with Catalina Maria Johnson on social media at Catalina Maria J. And it will benefit you if you do. You will find out about lots of cool stuff. And um, next time on Global Notes, we're going to have some gigantic taiko drumming or something. I think. <laughs>
5: So. Uh, but we don't have to go very far. Uh, we're going to go to Japan sonically, but uh, it'll it'll all be here.
0: All right, Catalina, we look forward to our next installment of Global Notes.
5: Uh, thanks so much, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview,
0: we are going to check in on Yemen. A month ago, the United States called for a unilateral ceasefire and gave uh, Saudi Arabia a month. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. We will talk about Yemen tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.